0: Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman, thanks for listening. Well, today's uh, person helping me out here, I think it's fair to say, is my favorite person in the world. I mean, tied oh, wow. with, well, tied with two other people, I have to be honest, tied with two other people, her brother and her mom. Anna Koppelman is here. She, We are gonna do a QA and a Ask Me Anything episode. I put it out there on Twitter, and um, we got some good questions. So we are gonna answer your questions. If you have follow up questions after this, you can tweet at me, or you can email me at themomentbk at gmail.com. People respond uh, very favorably to these episodes, partially Anna, because I think of how you curate and uh, <laughs> the questions and ask them, and they like uh, the vibes. You also, hi, honey, um, great hi. to see you.
1: Great to see you.
0: You're far away. You're thou- I won't give away your exact location, but you're thousands and thousands of miles away from me right now.
1: Yeah, I'm on um, an adventure.
0: How is your adventure?
1: My adventure is going well. I'm I'm having fun.
0: Good. I'm so glad to see you. This is a great... (laughs) I mean, it's not the only reason I decided to do an Ask Me Anything episode, but it's a contributing factor.
1: Oh, I'm glad.
0: All right, Boo, fire away. What do we got?
1: So you promised people you'd answer this on Twitter last night, so I thought we could just start by getting it out of the way. Um, what band or artist was the one that got away when you were in the music business Would their career, sorry, would their career have been different if you, I think they mean, would your career have been different if you signed them? Would but they
0: original. probably mean also with the band's career band's be different? career. Yes. Um, you're on your adventure in a place where part of it is you learning another language. And I think you're struggling with English right now a little
1: bit. I'd say that I, I my pursuits to learn the new language is primarily through watching Netflix shows in that language. And it's just messing up my first language.
0: It's clearly affecting your first language. No,
1: it's, it's a big problem. Should I read the question again?
0: I, no, I can I can paraphrase it. I think uh, I can translate your foreign language into well, I English,
1: think I, which I think they are asking. Is there a band that you feel is the one that got away? And do you think if you interacted with them, butterfly effect wise, your life and their life would be different?
0: Oh, sick, sick. Uh, Fractals, butterfly effect. Yeah, I love, okay. Yeah, the reason I wanted to answer this question is because part of how I know that gatekeepers are often wrong is I spent a number of years as a gatekeeper. I was an artist and repertoire executive at a record label, at a few different record labels. And like many people in those jobs, I was right. Plenty of times. Uh, I got the job because I was right in a big way in in the beginning and I um, felt I, I had an approach which was if I loved something and saw what was unique about it or incredibly compelling, if I couldn't stop thinking about it, if I was obsessed, I would want to engage with that artist. And I think that's a good prism through which to do that sort of curation job. But as an artist, and people listening to this, if you're somebody engaged in, in these, if you're in these waters, right. You know, we, we tend to imbue the gatekeepers with magical powers Mm -hmm. and, and we tend to think that the gatekeepers judgment, uh, upon our work, even when we tell ourselves, ah, you know, screw them or they're not going to stop some part of us. Like we just, Feel a little gut punched when we get a rejection, and I got plenty of rejections uh, along the way throughout my whole career. But the band that I missed, the one that really, the one that really fits the bill for the question, which is you know, uh, a, a band that that perhaps I could have signed that I passed on, and I, I and I'll tell you, I, I went to Chicago in, in 1989. And I saw three or four or five artists over the course of a weekend.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I did sign one of those artists eventually, Michael McDermott, who's a great artist. He just released his most critically acclaimed album now. He's like a brother to me. He's family to our family. But on that weekend, on a Saturday night, I went to a, a, a small uh, club. I mean, not such a small club, a club in Chicago. And a band went on stage. I was 23 years old. And a band came on stage. And I could tell they were doing something real. I watched the interplay. I watched the lead uh, singer, guitar player. I felt like they were connected to one of my favorite bands of all time, the Velvet Underground. I didn't have a tape of this band, which is my only defense, but it's not a defense. Something about it, it uh, made it clear to me they were the they were legit enough that I went backstage afterwards and I met them and I met the lead singer and I, I said you know you're great I can tell there's going to be something but ultimately when I left I couldn't quite understand or make sense of it enough it didn't haunt me in the way that these things should and I passed on them now. Other people became interested in them that week, and I'm not sure in the end that I could have signed them. But there is no doubt I passed. I said no. I said I didn't want to pursue the conversation. And then that band released their first album, and I put it on at home. And I realized it was one of the best albums of the decade, not just of that year. And I realized that I had been in the presence of somebody who was a musical genius. And the strangeness of what he did although it was apparent to me it for it caused me somehow to turn off instead of to turn on into it and that was the smashing pumpkins and it was billy corgan and um yeah oh no and and uh and i could have reacted by being like well they suck but i was like they're geniuses billy's a genius this is um incredible and years later i was in a bookstore i mean and i was really bothered by it, and it sort of changed the way I thought about doing the job and how I would have to find a way to get the music and listen to it on my own time or go back and see something. If something stirred something up in me, an artist, I would then try to just, even if I wasn't, what is it? What, what's pulling at me? I got to go see this again. Um, years later, I was in a bookstore in LA called Book Soup and I turned a corner. It's a small indie bookstore, a great bookstore. I turned a corner and Billy Corgan was standing there. And I knew he'd remember because of the way we met and the conversation we had that uh-huh. night. And I said, I introduced myself and he immediately looked up and I, and I was like, dude, I'm such an, I'm just such an idiot. And Billy is not known in the world often, he, he by his own admission, he's not always gracious about things like this, but he said, you know, man, I said, I just didn't understand what you were after. And he said, yeah, it was impossible to know. I was the only one who knew what I was after, and uh, I completely understand why just seeing it that night, you didn't get the whole thing enough to want to commit to it. And I really appreciated that he was um, graceful about it, and um, I have long felt like um, an, an idiot. And there's a great postscript, which is my dad and I, your grandfather and I were once sitting down, he's a very practical man, and obviously was very good at this thing that of of finding uh, artists and one day we were sitting in a restaurant in new york and we were that overlooked madison avenue i think a window and the smashing pumpkins walked by and you won't know boo because you don't know really what their thing is but they walked by and and you know so it was james Iha and billy and um the the whole band darcy who's a a, the bass player and he he just looked at me and and i said oh that's the smashing pumpkins And, and and he said uh you looked at that and you thought that's uh, just another typical band. Uh, <laughs> you didn't notice that they had like a look. And I was like, yeah, all right. I already feel bad. I feel bad enough, Pop. But um, anyway, so it look, you know, I used that later as fuel for myself in, and Dave in our career. Just remembering that like, you know, I was pretty good at that job. I... I was able to be part, you know, responsible for helping really many great artists get their work out into the world. And, um, and even so I missed the pumpkins, which told me when David and I began doing our thing was one of the things that told me that I can't let the judgment of the gatekeepers feel final.
1: I have a question, a follow up question. How did you avoid feeling jealousy or anger with yourself when you would listen to music when you missed the opportunity to sign people? Well, uh, did that ruin music for you? How did you?
0: Conscious, that's the, that like, it, what's great about you asking these questions is that you have had the opportunity to live with me for a long time. Uh, so, you know, like I worked at it, like, you know, like I really like, I was like, cause there was a moment, well, I've talked about this with Adam Duritz of Counting Crows, but the flip side of this is I was in somebody's office and they were like, oh, this demo just came in and they played me round here at the demo of the first Counting Crows song, you know, first song of the first Counting Crows album, August Uh and Everything After, one of my favorite albums of all time. And Uh I, the second that the song started, um, step out the front door like a ghost into the fog, never noticing the contrast of white and white in between the moon and you, the angels got a better view of the crumbling difference between wrong and right. When I heard that lyric and Adam's voice, I freaked the fuck out. And I was like, this is the best thing I've ever heard. What the fuck? And this guy's, I was, and it, but instead of what I'd done the rest of my life would have been, I wanted to share it with everybody and tell all my friends I was filled with rage and anger. And that's how I knew that I didn't get to hear it first. And I didn't get to find them. And that's how I knew I had to leave the music business. That was like one of the first things that let me know this job is going to change my relationship with this art form. That means more to me than almost anything else. And it's part. So on that day, I remember going home and, um, and having the temptation to like throw out a bunch of CDs. But instead I sat down, I picked out a bunch that meant a lot to me and I played them, that meant a lot to me and I played them. And I, um, and then a couple years later, I saw like me, uh, Adam, cause that was the demo and then the album had to come out but Adam was on SNL and I remember watching him on SNL and it kind of just crumbling and breaking. And I, I was like, oh, this is the best and I'm so happy. And I kind of got through to the other side of it um, that would be the one, the kind of thing that would bother me more. Like, if I loved something, but I couldn't get to work with the artist and I couldn't be part of the moment of discovery, th- that was very frustrating to me um, more than the Smashing Pumpkins thing. The Smashing Pumpkins thing, I rooted for them. Like, I fucked up. And then, because I, you know, it wasn't. So you know, I had the opportunity. I love their music. I it didn't get me mad. I I'm mad at myself, like idiot. Figure out how to do this better. But uh, it didn't affect my enjoyment of their music. The thing about that that I liked, like I liked the thing that that guy was doing some magic act that I couldn't understand, and then he found a way to get it to the world. It kind of right. gave me hope. Whereas like that thing with Counting Crows, or as I've talked to Jacob Dylan about on here. When I wasn't able to sign Jacob, even though I started people being interested and I was around it, and he, you know, on the podcast talked about how I really was the thing that sort of lit the spark for 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 what happened. That heartbreak of of him having to like gently say, I have to sign with someone else because the other record company's better. I mean, that was one of the things that made me want to leave for sure. Like I have to, you know, as I was trying to wrestling with this idea that I had to become an artist. So, um, yeah. Being a, that in that kind of a role um, presents many emotional challenges mm-hmm. and uh, because of the stakes and yes, you're right, because of what happens internally to you, you only know, get to make a few of those yes decisions. Those, that's the other thing that one has to know about gatekeepers. If you're somebody in the in the business of trying to get your work seen or heard or purchased or sold. Is you know the gatekeepers can only say yes very few times, and so mostly they're going to say no. And um, you get to say so few yeses that those yeses really matter. But when you when you and so when you commit and you're like I want to say yes, if you can't make it happen, it's it's uh, it stays with you. It lingers.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. I feel like a good question to transition to. Somebody asked. You often talk about your transition from music to writing. How did you know writing was the creative output that was missing? Was it an outlet for you before working in music, something fun you did in college? And to add on to that, I'm wondering, do you feel like because this time around you're on the side, you know, applying to the gatekeepers, you don't have that anger? Or are there still times where you feel like, I wish I thought of that or I wish I did that?
0: No, so I'll just take that part. No, I mean, you know what a fan I am. Like, no, I mean, I'm the, you know, I I love great work. I'm just totally inspired by it. Like even, you know, even like uh, I Dave and I tried twice to work with Martin Scorsese and it didn't quite work out. Like we did some work and then he moved on or fired us from stuff. Like I'm just the first person to see Marty's movies every time they come out. I love him and I love his work and I'm he's a hero. Right. And, no, I, I don't, I don't. Um, I did promise myself when I got into this that I would not let the business kill my love of movies and TV and this kind of work and that I would keep my fans um, hat on. I mean, one of the only time I can think of, and it was great fuel, was I remember seeing Ocean's Eleven and walking out of the theater thinking, that was great, Ted Griffin wrote an incredible script, Soderbergh directed an amazing movie, that's the best cast why didn't Dave and I get the phone call to write that movie? I wished we had gotten the call to write it. I felt like, gosh, I wish I did my work better. I wish I'd done something to be noticed enough. Cause Steven Soderbergh had come to the Rounders premiere and he liked it. And um, I was like, why? But I'd never met him beyond that. And so it was when we got the phone call that we had a chance to meet on Ocean's 13. I was able to use that memory and be like, well, I'm gonna. Uh, this might be useful to somebody. Like, one thing I've I, I've realized is when a, something means a lot to you, sometimes not you personally, boo, but like to to one. Yeah, like sir. the opportunity to get a certain kind of job, or sometimes like it's it's almost really hard to prepare because if you prepare super 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 hard and then you don't get the job, it's really heartbreaking. Whereas if it means a lot to you to get it, whereas if you don't quite. You know, crush the amount of effort, work, focus, and then you don't get the job. You can write it off to, well, I kind of phoned it in or I didn't, but, but, um, and I've, I've spoken at places, big gatherings of like salespeople who really relate to this, which is like, if something's really important, sometimes it's easy to slough off the amount of work you should do because you're protecting yourself emotionally from failure
1: I don't think that's just in work. I think that's probably anything that requires vulnerability to be good at something or to get the full experience out of it. It's much yeah. easier to shy
0: away. Yeah. It's much easier to shy away. Yes. But I remember for oceans 13, like David and I just did. So when we knew we had this meeting with Steven Soderbergh, we just did so much work, so much preparation. You know in a way we'd been preparing for it for years, ever since oceans 11 came out. But like, the amount of thought and work we put into a casual lunch with Steven. We weren't supposed to pitch him a movie idea. We were just supposed to have lunch and kind of sort of vibe. But like we had just read so many um, books about con artists, you know, nonfiction books and had studied and had really thought it through. And um, And I remember walking out the door and your brother was probably 10. And he was like, what do you think the chances are? And I remember saying like 5%, like I just not, it's too unrealistic because of where we were in our career at that time, I just couldn't fathom that we would actually get to work with those people and really write that movie. And I just put so much on the line to, to do it. And David and I both had, and I, I remember feeling so vulnerable, so vulnerable because if it didn't happen, I knew it was such a long shot. And if it didn't happen, I, I just remember feeling like I would have been just totally fucking crushed, so um yeah as a, as a as a corollary to everything we're talking about this this idea of remaining vulnerable ties into this question of when I decided to try to become a writer, and I've talked about it before, so I'll do it in a sort of abridged version though i've somewhere on my blog, I think um when your brother was born, I was working in in music still, and I just had this real crisis of conscience, I realized that. I'd always wanted to be a writer, but I was scared of it. Um, partially because I had undiagnosed ADHD, but the result of that was that I was unable to really produce work. I couldn't finish things.
1: You, but, you think it was also what you were just describing of like, if you actually tried to be a writer, the blow uh, of
0: Totally. What if I couldn't yeah. do it? What if I couldn't measure up? What if I wasn't good enough? What if, um, but how
1: did you know it was writing was the thing that you wanted to try? Well,
0: that's like, a pro it yeah, it was or, a process. Or, I'll tell you the answer. Um, when I realized that if I was creatively blocked it would uh, and allowed the blockage to win, the creative impulse would die like any other death that would be toxic and that would ooze out of me onto the ones I loved, I realized I had to make a change. And I did two things. I, I read um, Tony Robbins' book, Awaken the Giant Within, and then Dave gave me um, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way. And those two things, because there's a lot of exercises in those books, but as I started journaling in basically reading Awaken the Giant Within, maybe no, I had to make a change. And then doing The Artist's Way, you, you do these morning pages. And in the process of doing the morning pages, I discovered that what the thing was, was I had to try to be um, a writer and I had to try to tell film stories in some way that my ability to quote... Movies, um, learn all the dialogue, be obsessed with that, fanatical about it, and that all my friends, not all, most of my friends were writers, that I admired writers, that I always read, um, that that words and books were utterly compelling to me, and that movies meant so much to me, um, made me want to uh, try to, to, to do that.
1: For someone who is blocked in their own life but doesn't know what the creative outlet is, what is the process that you'd recommend for them to find their thing?
0: It is The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron. I I have not found a better resource. The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield is really strong, too. Uh, The Dip by Seth Godin is another one that I always recommend in terms of figuring out where you are and where you want to go. But the artist way in particular, if you're somebody who feels this impulse that you're supposed to be mostly living your life as some kind of artist, but you're not, and you're around artistic people and you're focused on it, but you're unable to produce work. That book is really a marvel and really did change my life and it's, I've given that book to many people and I've watched it change their lives too.
1: Moving more towards like the actual craft of writing. um, Somebody asked, how many edits does it typically take before a piece of writing gels for you? How many sleep cycles or other measures of stepping away and taking a breather?
0: So much rewriting. It's so funny, right? Because our family, all four of us, write, And uh, Mm -hmm. I think I could do the scale of rewriting in our family. Like mom definitely rewrites the most. No, does the most, by far. And then me or Sam, the second most, and you way down at the bottom, the fourth most of rewriting. Well,
1: (laughs) I feel like you never get anything I've written until I've rewritten it like 20 times. Sure, fair enough.
0: Fair enough. But your rap, your, the rap on you is that you rewrite uh, less yes, than no, the I, rest of I write it like us.
1: many times in my head first and then eventually.
0: Yes. Yeah. I mean, a lot like, like um, w- one gets better at this as one goes through a career. So at being able to, to switch into the objective head on the work. Like early on, I would have to walk away from scripts for a week or two weeks before I could look at them. But now, because of the pace of the television shows too,
1: mm-hmm.
0: I have to just put myself in that head quickly. The day I write something, if I care, if I'm if I'm writing something that that was hard to, to crack or that was like where it was super flowing suddenly, and I'm I'm like, I have that feeling that you get when you're like, oh fuck, that's good. I've pured that. Like, then like I am not gonna be objective about that for 24 hours. But mostly, yeah, like a day or two days later, I can look. Sure. I can't always fix it then. Like I just might know it's not quite right yet, and then I gotta go deal with it again. I, I look at it like, look, I spend a lot of time on songwriting. It's my biggest hobby, and the thing, um, I guess, it's tied with tennis for my biggest hobby. But um, I, but I really treat it not like a hobby. I treat it like a another job, and I've noticed the same, you know, that I'm I'm not as far along in the path. So it's harder to gain the objectivity when I, when I write a song and I feel connected to it because I'm so connected to the emotion behind it. The emotion behind what you're writing gets kind of commingled with what you think of the actual product. And then you got to like kind of really step away to come back. Sometimes that could take, yeah, still a week where it's like, Oh fuck, I could change that line or three days later. Oh yeah. If I just switched that, I mean, I just finished a song with my friend Jabe and um, that people are really liking who we've sent it to. And it took us a couple months of us, we finished it and knew it was really like something pretty special. And then we kept emailing each other every few weeks, like, why is this to these two lines not right? And we just couldn't get it. And we finally, months later, kind of figured out what it, it should be. It's like, it's a never ending process, that process. It's just about not bullshitting yourself. What What's the yeah, next I didn't thing?
1: Ask, how can you tell what the difference is between procrastinating, going back to doing the hard work of editing, and needing time?
0: I mean, so much of that is about, like, not lying to yourself. And also, like, it's a learned practice. Like, yeah, you got to move forward. And then sometimes something can't be fixed anymore. Um, You know, go on to the next thing. Like, okay, Jabe and I didn't just stop writing songs when we knew that song wasn't quite right yet. We just kept going back to it while also writing a lot of other songs. and Right. So you, you do you do both. But also you kind of, I would say with a lot of this stuff, you kind of, you get to a place in the process where you kind of know, okay, this section can't be improved. Oh, this section can be improved. I don't know how to do it yet. I may never know. So the thing's kind of done. Or, I mean, and the other thing is, you know, who can I show it to? So there are people in all these things that I will occasionally show pieces of work to to get feedback often the moment they start with the feedback you know because you sort of already know um, okay. yeah I mean that's a big part of becoming like professional at this stuff is is gaining the distance quick more quickly to evaluate the work in pro- in progress.
1: And that just comes with practice
0: Yeah I do think should we since since we kind yeah, of hinted but- at should we talk about ADHD a little bit?
1: You've said that since your diagnosis, you've written with ADHD meds and without them, how does your ADHD manifest when it reaches the point where you decide you need meds to work on a project?
0: For me, in the work context, when I feel like it's insurmountable is when the the work stuff is, as a kid, it was when the books felt radioactive is the best way I can describe it. Mm -hmm. I could I could read anything I was fascinated by. And as you know, Anna, I'm an incredibly fast reader with like a lot of retention, but only if I'm interested, only if it's compelling. And then I disappear. I mean, that's the great benefit of the hyper focus of ADHD. Then I can disappear into the thing. You could like hit me with a two by four and I would not hear you. Um, yeah. But ADHD is really I, I, want, I want to be glib in any way. I don't want to be glib in any way. Like for me. And for many people, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder is incredibly painful. When I can't do the work, when I can't force myself to lock in, to focus, to be there, it feels like a war is raging inside of me. And when I was a kid, you know, the the perception that I was lazy or Mm -hmm. unambitious would just uh, was so deeply, deeply jarring and upsetting because. I was ambitious, but the wires were crossed. I, I did wanna do well, I wasn't lazy. But it would seem lazy because you'd walk into my room and I would have my record albums all over the floor and the books I was supposed to read weren't opened, and then the books that I liked were like scattered everywhere because I would just be like <laughs> dipping into them. And I could, you know, uh, and it was impossible for the people in my in my life. And it's impossible, you know, you've uh, seen it, like we all get along incredibly well, but but my whole family talks about, you know, I can just disappear into like this, like if I'm not on meds, it's very hard for me to really be there um, unless and and really be as focused on the stuff that's not in the instant super compelling to me. I can. uh, um, You shut off if you have uh, ADHD sometimes. I can't go to like a, a, a parties are almost impossible. You have to meet people. Uh, like the, the parties with when, you know, if, if I had to go to an event for your school and it's a bunch of parents, I don't know if I'm not if I wasn't medicated, like f- being able to keep those conversations going. It was just impossible for me to not just want to to not. Now, what happens is and I'm lucky in this, if I take meds for a period of time, I can stop and then go like a year maybe more where I'm able to model the behaviors, where it kind of effect lingers. So I've written many billion seasons out of, now we're in season seven, out of these seven seasons, a bad half have been written mostly without any ADHD meds. And watching the show, you would just never know, which I will say the process of writing was much harder. Um, Right, getting yourself
1: to sit down.
0: Oh my gosh, yeah. Being able to really sit there and do the work, like, is so much harder for me when I'm not, um, medicated for me, I take Adderall extended release, which I just um, in the last couple of months switched to. I'm not a doctor; this is so not medical advice. But for me, um, the um, instant release Adderall, which is what I was always taking, um, when it when it leaves your body, it's too um, spiky and jagged, and it it could for like a half hour. It's very difficult. You feel really shitty and. You could be short with people, and um, and the extended release doesn't quite have that effect, and it's mellower. Um, but it's life changing. I want to just say, like for me, again, everybody's different, and many people don't need medication to fix it. But it is a, it's an enormous and dramatic d- difference. I could, for me, I, you know, I was a terrible student. I couldn't do my work. I got into a good college, and I got into a good law school because of all the other stuff I was able to do. Um, you know, because I would follow my hyper-focused obsessions or whatever and accomplish certain things. But I will tell you, it—the amount of effort it all took, and the constant pain of walking around feeling like a loser. You know, getting bad grades, teachers looking down on you. Feeling like you weren't like every, you couldn't do what was effortless to everybody else, was torture, and I, in and it lasted for a really, really, really long time, and I didn't yeah. get diagnosed officially till I was much older, and um, so I know for me, and you know one of the ways I know is at a certain point, you guys, you and Sammy and Mom will look at me and be like, you've been off your meds for a while right and i'll say
1: like a month ago or whenever it was you went back on them you were like is it really that different and we were all unanimously like yes it is that different
0: oh yeah well we were in that long car ride at some point and everyone was like
1: you were so patient and didn't care it was great
0: yeah it's a dramatic it is a dramatic difference i'm i i know that and um and look it has its downsides too obviously like but again for me you know I, right. it's hard to it's really hard to talk, explain how painful it was to have seven incompletes my senior year of college before i, I think could about solve it all
1: them. the time and i don't know how you slept ever like the the thought of having seven incompletes terrorizes me like i don't remotely understand it
0: yeah me neither i don't understand how i you know but, but as you know like i i was working on this other thing but it didn't matter and it was so scary and i couldn't sleep i I mean it was just it was just horrifying and um my great friend peter Grekin, um he would make this amazing he would make this coffee which we referenced on the show he would have me over and i guess the coffee which i didn't really drink coffee then i just started pete would make this coffee just um paper towel we there was not a lot of money uh he did not have a lot of money and. He would just make coffee like paper towel over a pot and just put thing, and he would type for me sometimes. He would just sit at his computer and he had one and I, I yeah, there was a laptop in his suite or whatever at school, senior year, and he would just type my papers for me. He would just sit there with me and type my papers to get oh me God. to do the work and it was just um, amazing. I would have like scrawled, handwritten, little like <laughs> pieces and I would give them to Pete and then I would just sit there with him. He'd be like, what's this word? And he would just, get it, help me get it done.
1: Right, I mean, you do you believe that the benefit maybe or a benefit of having um, ADHD is that you were able to figure out how to get yourself close to people who would do things like that for you? Like the social navigating?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I still to this day, that wasn't conscious, like I didn't know that. No, people, Pete would just, people would bail me out. Sometimes. But then it is like, it is true that to this day, I've never balanced my own checkbook. Like David Levine has always handled the business, that business part of it for our work life. And mom has always handled that part of it for our home life. And like, I've never had to do that kind of task, but also cause I didn't get medicated till I was like 40 years old. So there are things that I just never learned.
1: Moving on to uh, more like tactical writing questions. Somebody wanted to know what you do if you've realized that a character in your story or um, or realized when a character has been getting short shift, is there any specific process you use to resender a character in the story?
0: I'm, I'm not sure I think of it exactly like that. I think first it's, does the, the piece just work? If it doesn't work, why? And then well, point of, you're always thinking about point of view, so you're thinking about the point of view of a scene and then a series of scenes, then like a whole suite of scenes. Mm-hmm. And I, I will say, I guess one way to answer it is, a lot of the process of doing the writing is hard to articulate because it is less of an intellectual process where, where it's highly rational. A lot of it has to do with an instinct and the North Star for me is always just entertaining David, basically. And if I mm-hmm. can entertain David, and if the piece works, and if he can entertain me, then we've learned it's probably going to entertain the rest of the people.
1: That's so cute because you guys are still like 16 year olds in that sense of so just trying. We are. Yeah. We are. Speaking of uh, you and Dave. Um, and billions somebody asked who picks the whiskey for billions and why is it the only show that uses the right bottles in the right way and at the right time and at the right level of luxury
0: well we we are always thinking about the iconography we're always thinking about like what the right what would these people do and yes it's david it's that's mostly david and me and best schachter makes the show with us and but also like april taylor who's our line producer and an exec producer and mike harrop and our prop person who's um, incredible, um, Alexis Weiss. It's a group of people, but, but a lot of that does flow, flow from Dave and me. Look, uh, shout out to Mictors, who in a great bit of synergy, we got approached officially about Mictors early on, and then it, I, through like regular channels, and then I realized, or I knew, that it was a company owned by the Magliocco family, Joe and Nino Magliocco, who are incredibly dear friends of ours. One of Sammy's very best friends his entire life is Will Magliocco, Nino's uh, son. And um, so the idea of getting to work closely with Nino and Joe, the who are among the like just most wonderful, smartest, interesting human beings I know, um, and to learn about Michter's has been fantastic. And then the other stuff, like if there's a bottle of wine in the show, yeah, we're all really thinking about why this bottle of wine at this time. You know, if there's pizza on the show, it's like, well, Una Pizza Napolitana is our favorite pizzeria in the world. Can we put Anthony Mangieri in? We're And and we're like, because our characters have very rigorous um, requirements and taste level, and they're gonna go chase down the, the very best of something. Um, you know, each of those things is there for a very specific reason. And when our audience picks up on that, it is highly gratifying.
1: When you start um, thinking of a character or, yeah, coming up with a character, at what point do you begin to think about their iconography or what their drink would be and that sort of thing? Is that later in the process? All
0: the, yeah. yeah I, well, sometimes right away, right? Sometimes you might meet a character and they're engaged in – they're at a restaurant or they're engaged in something. And then sometimes – Not, I mean, I that's one of those things that is like, um, well, you understand how the characters dress right away and that's part of it. You know, this guy wears a hoodie, this woman wears jeans, you, and this would be the kind of jeans because it says Mm -hmm. something about the way she thinks about herself or how she wants to present herself to the world. I don't, you know, it's part of it. When you think of characters, something comes into your head and somebody, this is what I mean when I say it's not intellectual, you know, obviously it's a brain process, but not Intellectual. Sometimes I'll be writing and suddenly I will just, not knowing exactly why, I will write a description and that kind of opens up who that character is and it might include things like what they're carrying in their hand or or wearing or listening to or looking at. And it's the same with the reference palette that they use. It's all ways that reveals who they are and a lot of the time that's, some of the time that's super conscious and some of the time it's, it's not, it's subconscious, it's, you know, the way writing is.
1: Yeah, that's very interesting. Um...
0: All right, somebody asked me, how do you rate the big four of thrash metal for your personal preference and enjoyment, they asked me.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I wanted to answer that question, but but I would say, like, I have personal connections to three out of the four bands. Um, the f- big four, for those of you who don't know, are... Um, Metallica, Megadeth Slayer and Anthrax. When we were growing up, my friend Peter Zizzo was this great guitar player and he gave guitar lessons to Scott Ian, who, Scott Ian Rosenthal, who was um, the lead guitar player and creative driving force behind um, Anthrax. They lived like 40 minutes away. So I, I root for Scott and know him well, or I know I don't know him well. I knew him when we were kids. I don't know him well, but I like him and I root root for him because I have known him since I was probably 14 or 15 years old. Um, as you know, I was on the road with Metallica. I got to work with them and they came and participated in in, in Billions. Uh, I've known Dave Mustaine of Megadeth since probably 1990. And for two weeks, uh, I was part of his management team, uh, the management team of, of Megadeth. So, um, and I don't know anyone in Slayer, and, and and Metallica Metallica has very, very deep personal meaning to me. I've spent, so I'll just say, um, despite knowing Scott and really appreciating what Anthrax did in the world, which is the, the way they combine these disparate influences to create a kind of new form of metal, uh, their music has never just spoken to me in the way that the other bands have. So for my personal enjoyment, there, um, I really love John Bush when he sang with the band. Um, I was an Armored Saint fan. I mean, this is deep in the weeds for weird heavy metal fans like me. But um, I love the new wave of British heavy metal, and and Armored Saint were influenced by that. And they were in L.A. and John Bush was the singer. And then he became the singer of Anthrax for a while. And that's the and 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 as far as the canon of Anthrax goes, his records probably aren't the ones that people care about the most. But they would be mine. And Metallica and Megadeth are bands that I've listened to just. They've never not been, I've, I've always listened to those bands. And, and Slayer is this powerful titanic force and, and there's no d- d- denying it, but I found myself through the years listening to them much less. So it goes Metallica, uh, then Megadeth and Slayer, then Anthrax for me. And I would say that Mustaine's continued uh, growth, I just heard his new album's fantastic. And both Metallica and Megadeth never stopped trying to really produce the best music that they can and to keep growing and challenging themselves. And so it's, 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 it's close. I, I think Metallica is one of the greatest, absolute greatest rock bands of all time. And, um, and I think Megadeth is just right on that next tier.
1: Um, somebody, uh, wrote in asking if a critic says billions is not art, what is your response? Which I think is a good circle back to the idea of gatekeeping and, you know, who gets to decide what?
0: Thanks for watching.
1: That's, That's it, my that- only
0: response. Thanks for watching. Thanks for giving us your time and for watching. I mean, what can I, you know, there, there's, uh, I've had the experience of critics shitting on my work. I've had the experience of them platforming it and raising it up. I can't really um invest too much in it. I've seen the way I've seen critics who slammed my first movie 11 years later r- compare another movie to my first movie and talk about how great the first movie was. And I'm like, but but my dude, you didn't like it then. So I-, I can't I don't I don't put a lot um I don't really allow it. It's not for me. I don't really allow it to um Influence. me. And there's one TV critic who I like a lot and I'm friendly with who doesn't, who, who didn't view, he likes billions, but he didn't view billions the way that I did. Um, and it was frustrating for a minute if I'm honest, but then uh, I found out that he doesn't love certain shows that I absolutely worship. That's the thing. If you pay attention, like, like um, I love these shows, mom. And I love these shows by Paolo Sorrentino, which is what someone called the young Pope and the new Pope. Mm-hmm. And I mentioned them on the podcast with Chris Storr, the guy who does The Bear, and um, and this I was going back and forth with this one critic who I like, and he we privately, and it became apparent to me that he really respected that those shows. He didn't love them. He didn't. They didn't capture him. Uh, in, in, he he wasn't moved. And I immediately was just like, right. Well, if if he doesn't fucking love those shows. Why do I care about the way he watches billions? I don't.
1: Do you feel like um, the role of the critic is similar to the role of the gatekeeper, or are they different because they come at different stages?
0: It's different. Like A.O. Scott wrote a good book about this, and I've talked to Glenn Kenny, my very close friend, a lot about it. Critics, is it, criticism is its own art form. They do their own thing. I don't think the the creator of the work can interact with it in a way that changes the creator's. Work, though it's it's another longer conversation. I don't consider them gatekeepers. I do think that there are the only time at times I do are when they're paying attention to extra. They're paying attention to things that are outside of the bounds of the taking the work on its own terms. Mm. I really like when a critic at least recognizes what you're going for and then comments on it um, as its own thing. But um, a couple of people wrote about Super Pumped in a way that they were, they were talking about st- stuff that had nothing to do with what was happening within it. I mean, ultimately, enough critics liked Super Pumped, but um, but uh, there were some who's particularly like Brooklyn, kind of like cultural commentators more than critics, who I felt mm-hmm. were judging something other than the show. And then I, in my own mind, feel like. I've seen this enough over the course of our career. I know that it'll, the the show will reach its own level despite that and like, like um, its quality will become apparent, whether good or bad, but its quality will become apparent quite separate from the criticism of the moment that it was released.
1: Yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of your answers kind of have been getting at uh, believing in your own art enough to keep pushing on it.
0: Well, yeah, and being rigorous with it and criti- you know, being critical enough yourself to understand it. And yeah, look, I don't want to make it like I, I ignore the critics because I don't want to seem like I'm that, it's that easy. I am aware of it, I pay attention to it, but it rarely will change the way that I do my work. I feel like we've probably answered as many. I'm gonna quickly just look at one. Yes. Oh, someone asked what my favorite movie was when I was 12. I watched all these Westerns and gangster movies with my dad. And Stripes didn't come out till I was 14. It was so The Godfather and The Magnificent Seven. Those were my favorite movies when I was 12. And there was nothing in second place like that. Those were my absolute. Um,
1: How many times do you favorite movies?
0: Oh, I mean, just over and over and over again. Someone asked why I haven't had a Jay-Z cameo on Billions. Uh, I got to ask him personally and uh he loves Man. the show. He was incredibly complimentary, and he was like, "Nope, I don't. I would just prefer to watch your show than be um, on your show," which I thought was fantastic. And just, you know, he's just such a badass. Um, all right, well, listen, Anna, I love you so much, and I really appreciate you doing this. Go have a great day on oh. your adventure.
1: Yes, yes. We and
0: thank you. Yeah. Oh, you're giving Littles a hint to where you are. <laughs> we oui. all right everybody see you next time uh you can find me on twitter at brian koppelman you can find anna on twitter at anna koppelman i think
1: but i don't i haven't tweeted in probably like three years so you can all right, find me so
0: you. you can find her but it's not, not going to do, do much yeah. for you and you can email me at the pk, all right see everybody next time Bye. bye